as we get bigger, the biggest change that I've had to make is being very, very clear to more people how we want things done. Pimped out avocado toast is a really good seller. It's on like Dunkin' Donuts menus now. And I look at that and I'm like, oh, that's so funny that like, you know, it was such a novelty. And so I think to a certain point, depending on your square footage, food becomes a necessary part of the business economics, right? Like, how are you going to make your PL selling $5 cups of coffee? Welcome to Fifth Wave. Today we're exploring the synergies between food and coffee in hospitality businesses. The upside to adding food to a coffee proposition is obvious. Higher average spend and meeting customers' hunger needs are just a few. But delivering excellent coffee and food simultaneously is never easy. And success often depends on the scale and scope of your business. What a purist coffee outlet offers on its food menu will differ tremendously to a full-scale restaurant. So in this episode, we're speaking with four leading operators of all shapes and sizes to understand how they each approach the careful balancing act of delivering great food and coffee within their establishments. We'll be speaking with Heather Perry, Vice President of Clatch Coffee, Henry Roberts, CEO of Two Hands, and Miles Kirby, Head Chef and Co-Founder of Caravan. But to kick things off, we'll be looking at how a large food franchise thinks about their coffee and explore leading food trends by hopping on the line with Claire Clough, UK Managing Director of Pret-a-Manger. Pret was founded in 1986 in London and offers freshly prepared, high-quality food to people on the go. All Pret's food is prepared in on-site kitchens and unsold products are given away to local charities at the end of each day. Pret now has nearly 400 sites in the UK, a considerable footprint in the US, and company-owned sites in Hong Kong and France, plus a growing list of international franchise partnerships. Welcome, Claire. Thanks very much. Great to be here. I wonder if you could just, by way of introduction, perhaps give us a little bit of your own background and you know how you got started in Pret and what roles you've had within the business. So I'm actually a food technologist by trade, although it's some years ago since I uh, specialised in that. So I did a degree in food technology, and then I moved into some various food roles in retail. And then about 11 years ago, I got the opportunity to join the Pret team. Pret was always a business that I'd admire, having always worked in food. So I was uh, delighted to come along and meet the team here and fell in love with uh, it almost as soon as I did. And so I joined about 10 and a half years ago. I actually joined in a team who were focused on business development. And I was involved in the opening of our Paris business, which was the first new market we'd opened for some time. And once we'd done that, a couple of years later, I moved into the core UK team and I was the head of food and technical before taking on some wider responsibilities, including the commercial team um, and becoming the, the food director. Then I became the chief food and coffee officer. So I was working not only with the UK team, but supporting our other teams around the world. And then in the summer of 2019, I was given the opportunity to move into my current role, which is that of the UK Managing Director. So a real privilege for me to be able to lead the UK business for prep. And how would you say the food-to-go market has changed since you joined the business? What's different about food today than it was, say, 10, 12 years ago? I'd say that customers' expectations develop and they don't get any easier. So I'd say that, you know, we see increasingly customers that desire for more options, different ways of eating. Some people have more of a grazing diet than they did previously. We see 
dietary trends such as gluten-free or vegan. So I think it's just become more diverse. But what has stayed the same is that sort of desire for the quality and that real association with value being around the quality of product that you can access and really people wanting to really enjoy eating as an occasion throughout their day. I don't know that maybe 15 years ago, someone would have asked you, what did you have for breakfast? Because it was a much more functional experience. Whereas people now, I think, take the time to really enjoy every occasion that they have a meal or or they choose to go out and buy some food. Just speaking broader now, what would you say are the big trends in food? You mentioned gluten-free. What would you say are like the really big themes in food today? I would say probably the, the biggest one is the move towards more plant-based eating. And we've definitely seen that explode over the last three to four years. And I think it's here to stay. I think it's fundamentally based in people thinking more about the choices that they make, wanting to make probably slightly different, maybe potentially healthier choices than they may have made in the past. And I think that's manifested itself in the industry stepping up. So we took a look at ourselves back in 2016 and and realized that actually the offer that we had for our vegan and vegetarian customers was very limited. So we sort of assumed that if you're a vegetarian, you would want to eat, you know, egg and cheese in, in one form or another. And that we had a very, very limited offer for vegan customers. And I think we've all had to step up across the industry. And I think now you can eat absolutely fantastic vegan and vegetarian food in many, many places. And that has been a a significant change that I've seen really during the last sort of five to 10 years. What's the scale of that change across the business? Yeah, I would say in that time, it's more than doubled. So I would say it would have been single digits when when I first joined. And now I would would say, you know, it's probably somewhere between 20 to 30%, depending on whichever shop you look at or whichever time period, because the impacts of the last year have made some of the data a little harder to read. But yeah, I mean, an example I would share is that we launched a meatless meatball wrap in January, a vegan product, that it was a vegan version of one of our most popular hot wraps, the Swedish meatball hot wrap. And we saw that become a a real top seller almost overnight, showing us that it was appealing to not only our vegan customers, but a much wider customer base and could sit very comfortably and perform very well against its meaty equivalent. So it's definitely something that the appeal is very broad of. And it's definitely something that we get a lot of interest from customers when we bring new products onto the market. So what are the challenges for a food operator in doing good coffee? For us, it's a lot of it has been in obviously the, the quality of the product that we purchase and the equipment that we use, but but a lot around the training and the passion in our teams. So we have a number of key roles in, in our prep team, one of which is the barista. I think it's possibly one of the hardest roles in our shops. It's a very busy environment and you're collecting orders from multiple tills. And it's about having people that are passionate about producing a fantastic cup of coffee every single time. So we are quite focused on speed. We want people to be able to get in and out uh, reasonably quickly, but we don't want to do that at the detriment of the product we produce. So that puts quite a lot of pressure into the barista. And uh, that's why we invest a lot of time in in training and engaging that team to make sure that they can deliver that great experience uh, day in, day out for all of our customers. What are the synergies or opportunities in pairing food with coffee? Yeah, I think it's about having the right products at the right time of day for whichever category that was. So if I think about you know where we have big coffee occasions, in the mornings, we, we have a lot of products that go very well with a cup of coffee, such as a, a croissant or, or another of our freshly baked bakery range. But we perhaps have less so in the afternoon. So we, we spot an opportunity there to say we see less people coming in and buying a coffee and something in the afternoon than, than we would in the morning. And that suggests that we haven't quite found those complementary items there. 
And in the reverse, part of the idea around expanding the range of coffee products and especially going into some of the iced coffee range and, and cold brewers we now have during the summer months was to really complement that sort of lunchtime coffee drink or more refreshing drink, especially we were seeing a sort of seasonal dip in coffee sales. And that was really important for us to think about how we had the right drinks offer for customers at different times of day and, and during different seasons. So it's just really continuing to look at the data. And we recently launched a coffee subscription program, which has allowed us to start really understanding what our customers are buying with their coffees and, and when they're buying that and really understand what else we could be offering them or, or what else they, they might be interested in. So when COVID hit, you introduced a Pret subscription service offering customers unlimited barista-made coffees for only £20 a month. Where did that idea come from? Well, I think we saw something a bit surprising, actually, as we came out of COVID. And that was that we saw people really celebrating their prep coffee. And again, we'd perhaps underestimated how much people had enjoyed their daily coffee habit. And as our shop started to reopen after the first lockdown, we saw people posting on social media sort of images of themselves holding a coffee cup aloft as if they'd won some sort of trophy. And we realized that people really wanted to celebrate those simple things like, you know, their daily coffee, that habitual routine that they were in. And we started thinking about ways that we could do that in, a, in an engaging way and, and really demonstrate to people why they might want to choose Pret. And that really started the idea around the coffee subscription and definitely had a role in, in increasing the amount of footfall in our shops at a time when that was very important to us. But more than that, I think it allows us to you know, present something to customers that is you know, really fantastic value for money and uh, hopefully get them to enjoy you know, a wider variety of our drinks. That's why it covers the entire barista prepared drinks range, because we wanted people to you know, not just have their morning coffee with us, but to try some of our other drinks throughout the day as well. Thanks very much, Claire, for being with us here today at Fifth Wave. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's incredible to see the growth of Pret's plant-based food offerings and how quickly consumer tastes are shifting. It's also interesting to see how Pret has used its coffee subscription as a major driver of footfall. At £20 a month in the UK or $19.99 in the US, it makes me wonder how established coffee chains will react to this new level of competition. Now we're speaking with Henry Roberts, founder and CEO of Two Hands, a brand of Australian-inspired cafes in the US. Two Hands is a food-focused business with a very strong coffee offer, but this wasn't the original plan. In this interview, I wanted to understand how Two Hands keeps its coffee program as strong as its food offer. Henry's originally from Sydney, Australia, and worked in the music business before ending up in New York. It was here in 2014 that Two Hands was founded. And today it operates four restaurants in New York and one in Austin, Texas. Welcome, Henry. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So was Two Hands always a food-focused business, or did it start as a pure coffee play? We definitely started primarily as a coffee shop and making sure that that was top-notch. And I mean, the first couple of days, it was just coffee, and then we added croissants, and then we decided to blend a smoothie, and then we baked our first banana bread, you know, a week later, and, and it was very organic how we grew like that. So it sounds like food was introduced slowly and organically. Why did you decide to embrace food? Obviously, you know, when you're running a business, you want your customer spend to go up. And in this business, food is a big ticket compared to, you know, your, your 3 to $5 coffee. You know, if you've got that customer coming in for their coffee, you want to get them for the breakfast sandwich. You want to get them for the acai bowl and you want to, you know, move your ticket from $5 to $13. Food is our main business now. 
And so we now really see the concept as like a restaurant rather than a coffee shop. So how do you keep that focus on coffee? We work with a great team. We work with an Australian-based company to roast our own blend now and like white label our, our sort of two hands coffee. So we work with them on, you know, quality control and, and training and all the rest of it. And our core hiring concept is based off each store having, you know, a specific barista who's mm-hmm. taking care of the, the quality of coffee. But we also, and we've always done this, everyone who comes to work at Two Hands, at any of the restaurants in the front of house has to kind of go through the coffee training program. They all have not only an understanding of coffee from a customer relations standpoint, but they can jump back there and make a coffee if needed or help out if it gets busy or dial in the filter, you know, and brew a new batch. And and all that just creates, you know, a whole nother training element to our staff experience. And, you know, because it is such a, a big part of our DNA. Moving to that food dominant model, you know, what are the challenges that you've seen over the over the progression of, of two hands in terms of, you know, making food work, equipment's another one, staffing. How much more complex is it? Yeah, there's a couple of sort of, I guess, big factors. One being staff, you know, staff across the board, any position, staffing's really hard. Finding cooks, training, quality control, all that just adds a whole nother layer. The next is space. Like if you're expanding, you're looking for spaces. Some spaces let you do black iron venting and gas cooking. Some places don't. If you do and it's not in place, it's very expensive to put in several hundred thousand dollars, usually, especially in New York. And so you got to go, all right, well, if we're going to put in this and we're going to go down this avenue, then food has got to be a significant part of our ticket. And if it's not, then there's ways you can cold cook and you can do a simplified kind of grab and go situation. You know, there's also third party businesses that basically white label your sandwiches or muffins or whatever. Like if you just own like a kind of coffee shop grab and go concept. And, you know, for us, you know, we make everything in house, every aioli, every chutney, every hummus, every, everything is made from scratch. So it's a big challenge and it's a, it's a commitment, but for us, it's definitely paid off. I wouldn't have it any other way. I- I wonder if you could share with us some of the trends that you've seen in food over the last few years emerging and perhaps after that, what trends you might think are going to be seen into the future. To go right back to the start, I feel like when we opened our first location, a lot of the cafes we're seeing were very dark, dingy, reclaimed wood, very like hipster and we kind of did the, wanted to do the complete opposite, white walls, light, bright, beachy, you know, from our knowledge of back home. And that's what we wanted to, to represent us as a brand. And this idea of people coming in and taking pictures of their food felt like just we were just on the wave of that. That just started to kick off posting on your Instagram or your Facebook that, you know, what you were eating and all the rest of it. I just felt like we were lucky that hit the ground running. When we opened, our Instagram was very popular, just naturally. People were just interested in what they're eating, where they're eating, who they're eating with, da-da-da. Top of that, the next major one would be this healthy transition of people's eating and food. And, you know, where brands like Sweetgreen take growing and being kind of leaders and creating these trusted brands in food. Just felt like this kind of new wave of, of movement. And it goes for coffee as well. The third wave coffee and your intelligentsias, your stump towns and 
Lark Alarms and all the rest of it. And then you had, so people started to gravitate to these places and then expect that quality elsewhere rather than a restaurant that just does good food and kind of has this like rusty old machine out back that if anyone needs a coffee, like it's there, but no one really cares about it or knows how to use it or vice versa. You have a coffee shop that's really good at coffee, but has no interest in food and has a few stale croissants sitting out if you want them kind of thing. We were trying to like combine the two because people were were wanting both and, and expecting both a little bit more, I think. And you're also kind of killing two birds with one stone, right? You're getting the, them in for the coffee and they're grabbing their lunch there as well. Just to share with our audience, what, what are some of the top five, some of your best sellers? On our menu, food-wise? Yeah, food-wise. Yeah. So we have a brassicas bowl, which is like a kale salad, which has probably been our top seller since it's been on the menu. Obviously, our avocado toast is a a very high (laughs) seller as well. Again, the evolution of everything, I'm like wanting to get away from this like avocado toast and coffee world and label, but it definitely still is one of the top sellers. Our acai bowl that's pretty much been on the menu since day one is still a very high seller. With things like the burger, which uses a beef from my farm, is a very top seller in Austin. We have what's called like a Soko toast. We're on South Congress, it's called Soko, which is basically like a pimped out avocado toast is a really good seller. And we have like our salmon bowl, both in New York and in Austin, you know, kind of like our healthy salad bowl, quinoa, the rest of it is probably one of the number one sellers as well. So, Wow. Amazing to see the avocado <laughs> toast still so yeah. much part of the- <laughs> You know, I, I saw that it's on like Dunkin' Donuts menus now and it's like, <laughs> you know, on like weird little cafes at, at airports all around the country now. Yeah. And I look at that and I'm like, God, oh, that's so funny that like, you know, it was such a novelty. I feel like when we first opened that this was a thing on the menu, it's such a simple thing that- people have attached to, but now it's, you know, it's in Dunkin' Donuts and it's crazy. Well, thanks, Henry, for being here today with us on Fifth Wave. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. So it seems like the secret to great coffee in a food-focused business is down to rigorous staff training supported by a strong roasting partner and always having a barista leading the coffee quality in each store each and every day. Now we hop across the pond to London to speak with Miles Kirby, head chef and co-owner of Caravan, a business that is essentially equal parts coffee and food. Caravan operates six restaurants in London, serving high-quality food in a premium environment. But Caravan also has a thriving coffee roasting business, selling their specialty beans wholesale to cafes, to retail drinkers, and also delivering a high-quality coffee experience at their restaurants. Miles has some valuable insights as to how their restaurants shift focus between coffee and food fluidly throughout the day. Welcome, Miles. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the background of Caravan. It started as an idea in New Zealand probably about 30 years ago. Chris Law and I, we worked together in a restaurant in Wellington. We were, we were young and we were dreaming of leaving the country, going and doing a big overseas experience and seeing the world. And we uh, used to talk a lot about moving to London and opening a restaurant or a bar or something. The, the plan took a, a few more years to get off the ground than it probably should have, but we eventually all found ourselves here in the UK. And the dream didn't really die, so we, we continued to talk about it. But we were here for a good 10 years, I suppose, working and getting to know the local scene 
I suppose, which I think is super important in a city like London. You need to know how it operates and who the players are and where to get things from really quickly, how to get things fixed cheaply. Yeah, we started the search for a site and by then the plan had kind of evolved into a, a plan that included a coffee roasting business and a restaurant. Sort of a combined two businesses in one. We took quite a while to find a site. We looked for years and then finally found one on Exmouth Market, which kind of suited our needs in that it had a bit of space downstairs that we could roast coffee in. With hindsight, it was a stupid idea putting a coffee roaster in the basement because you have to carry those sacks downstairs, roast them and then carry them back out. And the rent was good and there was room upstairs, about a thousand square foot upstairs to build the restaurant, sort of 50, 60 seater restaurant upstairs. And the restaurant was busy from the offset as well. Yeah, and from there we went on and opened in King's Cross, moved the coffee roasting operation to the ground floor at King's Cross as well, which made things a bit easier. We had a bit more space. Yeah, and then tried to get used to having a restaurant five times the size of anything we'd ever operated before, which took a good couple of years to really work out how to do it. Before we went and opened in Bankside, then Fitzrovia, Cannon Street, and now we're in Chelsea on the King's Road as well with a new concept called Vardo. So we've got six, six sites, and we've actually moved the coffee roasting operation to its own spot now, which is just up in Islington. We've got an old Victorian warehouse that uh, houses our coffee roasting operation, QC lab, training rooms. We're going to have a cafe there eventually. And we've got our own sourdough bakery there that we uh, produce all our bread for the restaurants and viennoiserie and desserts and all the sort of centralized dessert production out of that space as well, which is great. How important is coffee to the caravan business in terms of the restaurant business? They were so interlinked when we start. We were roasting coffee in the restaurant in the basement. We kind of set it up with thinking there'd be two separate businesses, but what we soon realised that the coffee was formed an integral part of what we were doing in the restaurant by way of our breakfast service and our weekend brunch services just went absolutely crazy straight away, feeding thousands of people over the weekend for poached eggs on avocado and toast and a huge amount of food and a huge amount of coffee. And I think those two particular services go hand in hand with breakfast and brunch and coffee. That's when people want to drink coffee with their food. And then the rest of the time, I think when people are drinking coffee, it's after good food and it doesn't necessarily have to go hand in hand. But it's quite interesting with hindsight how they've found their own paths. They rely on each other in the mornings and at the weekends during the day, but that's when they feed off each other the most, I think, yeah. What about the evening? I mean, many restaurants struggle to do decent coffee service in the evening. Now, you guys obviously are coffee roasters as well, and you have amazing baristas in your team, so it shouldn't be too hard for you to actually deliver great coffee. It has been. I think it's a matter of training and staying on top of that training. So with our new roasting facility now, we've got the training space where everyone that works on our bar and, in fact, in our kitchen comes up and spends time in that room with our trainers, learning how to make coffee, learning all about the sourcing policy, learning all about how we roast. So there's a knowledge within our company that I think transcends most other restaurant businesses, as you'd expect. If they want to work on our bar, then they've got to know how to make coffee. I'm quite amazed how Caravan is able to transform itself from coffee focus to food focus and back again throughout different stages of the day. What's the secret to getting it right? In the morning, we're a breakfast operation from 7 till 11.30 a.m. At 11.30, the kitchen closes for breakfast service, and then the kitchen cleans down, and we've got half an hour to get ready for lunch. During that half an hour, it's up to the front of house staff to set a new tone upstairs, and that is resetting the tables with a full cutlery, wine glasses, water glasses, laying out menus, and managing the booking situation, offering people menu if they've been sitting there for breakfast, just having a coffee, say, look, we're going to possibly need your table back, just to let you know. If we do, we'll just get you to move either up to the bar 
And, and managing that politely and well is a real skill, I think, from our front of house people. We have a natural afternoon coffee rush as well. So lunch service finishes, and then we have a bunch of people that might come in and have a piece of brownie and another coffee. The next transition is into the evening. And one way that we've always managed that well, aside from the resetting of the tables with salt and pepper and wine glasses again, is the lighting in the room. So it's laying out candles and making it feel like a restaurant rather than like a cafe that does food in the evening. It's a subtle hint that we give, but there's an energy in a restaurant that you don't get in a cafe at that time. They're upbeat, they're feeling anxious about the service, they're feeling excited about serving and making sure people are having a good time. Smartly dressed, their heads are up rather than, I think sometimes in cafe situations, people can be a bit more relaxed about the service. So it's being taking it seriously and acknowledging that it's a change and sort of embracing that change and making a big deal of it is key. Operationally, what do you have to get right to deliver food in today's world? As we get bigger, the biggest change that I've had to make is being very, very clear to more people how we want things done. Instead of writing a recipe down on a piece of paper and handing it to a chef, it's now about loading that into a program that basically tells the chef exactly how to do it, costs it, almost sources the product and specs it up to the point where they can't get it wrong. And I think that's been the biggest shift for me from being a very casual sort of a head chef operating one kitchen. But now I have to do things and show everyone else how to do it as well. Culinarily or ingredient wise, what are some of the trends that you've seen in, in menus, in, in restaurants and your, within your own business over the last 10 years? Well, we started 10 years ago and I was looking at our original menu and that of those 15 small plates we had, we had nine plant-based or vegetarian out of those 15. And then there were three fishy ones and three meaty ones. And I think that was actually a bit of a groundbreaking thing back then. And I've certainly noticed a far bigger focus on plant-based food, healthy food, you know, the search for well-being and, you know, this balance with your body. You've got to look after your body, you've got to look after your mind. What you eat for lunch or dinner is a huge part of that, I think, particularly at lunchtime. When we look at places, you know, in the city, you know, there's a queue out the door for these grains and bowls. The audience is about 80% female there as well, which is interesting. But it's quick, it's easy, it's fresh. Most importantly, it's got to be delicious. Well, Miles, it's been great to have you here today on Fifth Wave. Mate, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Again, like Two Hands, Caravan puts a heavy emphasis on training to keep the coffee offering as strong as its food offer. But Miles also points out how he uses technology to deliver a formidable food offer consistently across their multiple sites. To wrap things up, we're speaking with Heather Perry, Vice President of Clatch Coffee, a family-run chain of cafes and a roastery in California. Her business very much emphasizes coffee as the core offering. It's worth noting Heather is a former US barista champion and former president of the Specialty Coffee Association. In this interview, we explore how Heather complements her coffee offering with food and the complexities it brings. Welcome, Heather. Thank you, thank you. I wonder if you could give us a little bit of background on Clutch Coffee, please. We have actually been around for 28 years. My parents started it 28 years ago with one location in Rancho Cucamonga. And at the time, we actually weren't even a coffee roaster. We were buying coffee from a few different places out there. And we had a very typical friend's coffee house is how I would describe it. We had a a big menu with lots of mochas. We had a wide variety of sandwiches. And today, we are just now opening our seventh Clatch Coffee location. And we are also a roaster. So would you say that your venues are coffee-focused or a balance of coffee and food-focused? So I would say our venues are definitely 
coffee focused. We look at food as kind of that complement to coffee. You cannot live on coffee alone as much as many of us try to. (laughs) And yeah, being where we are, it's definitely one of those things where, you know, people are on a lunch break. They don't have time to go to multiple places to get both a coffee and a sandwich. It's also one of those places where, you know, coffee houses are this place where you come and you meet friends, this place is where you come and study. And so food should really be a complement to that conversation and to the coffee that you're having. It should allow you to kind of power through your day. So would you say that food has increased in its importance or stayed about the same in terms of its importance to your business over the years? So for us, I would say that the food has become more important over the years. And for a few reasons, I mean, costs for everything are continuing to increase, right? And so I think to a certain point, depending on your square footage, food becomes a necessary part of the business economics, right? Like, how are you going to make your P&L selling $5 cups of coffee? Food allows you to get that up to a $10 ticket average plus, right? It allows you to bring in more customers throughout the day. It allows you to bring in a different customer as well. Some people might stop in for just a sandwich because they've heard about them. And the way we approach our food is we want our food to be as good as our coffee. Because if you're going to come in and just grab a muffin, I want you to be like, wow, that muffin was really good. Their coffee must be good as well. Or if you come in for a sandwich, you have that same kind of idea there. So we definitely take our food seriously and try and definitely do it high end. But to me, it's become more important because it allows us to open additional cafes. It allows us to have some square footage with seating in it, where if all you had was coffee, I think that becomes much more challenging. So what are the challenges of of implementing a stronger food offer into an outlet like yours? So for us at Clutch, the food comes with a few major challenges. One, being in Southern California, we've got tons of bureaucracy. So simply the permitting and space required to do food becomes a big challenge. I have to have an additional prep sink in my back room, and that prep sink has to have a drain board. So that's three feet of space. And that doesn't include then having a lunch prep table to be able to make it, to be having a slicer. So just the space requirements that I have to have because of the permitting become honestly, a really big contributing factor in can we do this or not. Then on top of that, it's a completely different thing than coffee in the sense, right? I I mean, we, so here we slice all of our fruits and veggies fresh. We slice all of our meats and cheeses fresh. We bring in bread from a local baker, but we ask our staff to do a lot. So not only do they have to come up with the coffee piece, but they also have to learn how to use a slicer properly and then learn how to build the sandwiches properly. So for us, it's really important to have a training program that's like, nope, so this is how we assemble the sandwich and making sure our team understands that. So those are some of just the big ones right off the bat. On a good note, from a capital investment, it's not overly costly to get into doing food. It's really about being methodical, knowing what you want to do, and then being able to execute the requirements efficiently is more what you kind of have to be aware of. How much complexity does it add to the staffing requirement by adding food? So for our food, we do not have a central production site. So every store has a slicer and a lunch prep table. From a staffing perspective, it's an additional two people on weekends, you know, one person during the week. And that's on every shift that we have. So from a labor perspective, it definitely increases our labor. It also increases the amount of staff that we have to have. And it's also one of those things, you know, if somebody comes in and it's a slower time and I may only have three people working, but there's a huge food order, food takes longer to make than it does drinks. So it definitely changes the way that we have to work and how we can satisfy customers. So we're always aware of that as well. It's like, man, if if we're going to do this, here's what it takes to do it. How much do I have to sell to make it worthwhile? Right. So it's a numbers game. I mean, California is well known for its plant-based culture. Is that still on the increase? 
Definitely. Yeah. The plant-based culture here is definitely continuing to increase. I'm not sure in, in other places how much your plant-based meats are taking off, but they're definitely huge. You see them in quite a few drive-throughs and so on. Instead of plant-based meats, we just take the approach of doing actual plants. And that's where like our avocado toast, like our baker, you know, the sourdough that he does is a vegan sourdough. We do a lot of vegetarian eggs, not vegan, obviously, but vegetarian yeah. eggs. So we don't do the plant-based meats. I don't know. I just kind of feel like if you want meat, have meat. And if you don't, we've got delicious other options, but that's just me. That might change later down the road. That's just kind of where we are with it right now. What would be your concern about the plant-based meats? That's just not really something people are asking for. Like I said, for the people who don't want meat, it's kind of like if we have vegetarian options, they seem to be quite satisfied with those and they're not like they are lacking or missing out on anything. Yeah. And we still have a good amount of people. You know, we still sell a ton of bacon. So is finding great supplies, is that one of the challenges? It's a huge challenge. So we do all of our own baking for all of our pastries in the morning. We bake all of those fresh in-house. We have a local baker who we work with for our breads. And then, like I said, for our lunch stuff, we slice all of our meats and cheeses and so on. But we don't do like packaged or prepared foods, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. from other places. And so in order to do gluten-free, that's still what I'm looking at doing. And I just haven't found anything that is as good as the other items that we do. And I don't want to serve an inferior product. So that's kind of that balance as well. Is do you bring something in just to have it, knowing that it's not as good as you want it to be, mm. right? Like, so I think that that's always a challenge as well. We love getting customer input on it. It's like, oh, hey, I found this really great product. You should look at bringing it in. Anytime we get comments like that, we try and always look at those as well. But for a lot of those type of gluten-free and other things, you know, storage is an issue. How well, how long they hold up is an issue, right? Like, you know what I mean? If it's got a shelf life of a day or two, it's like, well, that might not necessarily work because I can only get this product, you know, once every week or whatever it may be. So finding the right vendors for these things, finding the right storage for all of these items become an issue as well. Did you find yourself delivering food? Was that a pivot that your business made with COVID? Yeah, we don't deliver it, but we have over here like DoorDash and Uber Eats and Grubhubs and those types of delivery services. So while we were not doing them before, we do offer them now so people can order ahead. And funny enough, I mean, our food, in my opinion, holds it better than our coffee does for those delivery mm. services. Because if you get a cappuccino and get it delivered, like you just shouldn't. Yeah. And let me just say that, yeah. hot people, you should not be getting these drinks delivered to you. They're just not good. The food, on the other hand, and holds up really well in the delivery service. So funny enough, we tailor what we offer on there. And it's probably the thing that I get complaints about the most. It's like, why can't I order this off of there? It's like, because it's going to be terrible when it gets to you after 30 minutes. Like you just shouldn't do that. And I'm just going to make that life decision for you. You don't get it. But luckily the food does hold up well. So that definitely helped us during the pandemic to come through. It definitely made a difference. Amazing. Thanks, Heather, for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. Thanks so much for having me. Kaiser's food proposition is relatively streamlined compared to outlets offering a full brunch menu with a head chef. Yet it was fascinating to hear how operationally challenging it is for any business to offer something as simple as a high-quality sandwich. And that's all this week for the Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really appreciate a good rating if you enjoyed this show. Also, get in touch and tell us what topics are important to you so we can make the show more relevant to you and to your business. You can follow the link in the show notes to worldcoffeepodal.com slash fifth wave. This episode was recorded in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, the World Coffee Pottle team, 
James Harper of Filter Productions and sound engineering by Chris Brister. Today we leave you with the winning song from the Coffee Music Project 2021 Summer Edition, which we announced just this week. The track is called Send Me by Bobby Harvey. I hope you enjoy it and a big congratulations to Bobby. Have a great week and until next time, stay safe and stay caffeinated. Body feel astray. I keep counting days till I feel you. So I whisper to the wind, Can you carry all my kisses? Sending through the wind, I wanna make sure that you don't miss him. Cause my heart forbid that they would get to anyone else's lips but his. Can you promise me this? Oh, can you? Wishing I was with you instead Even if we don't go very far Even if I'm not inside your heart As much as I like to think Would you still buy me a drink? If you see me at the bar When you knew that, knew that I was on a mission to be seen by you So can we get a drink or two? Cause I can think of only you, only can you Can carry all my kisses? Sending through the wind I wanna make sure that you don't miss him Cause my heart forbid that they would get to anyone else's lips but his Can you promise me this? Oh, can you send me, send me, send me